There is no such thing as public money. There is only taxpayers' money. So I think the population is split, right? <laughs> Half of us are zombies. I feel, you know, I, I feel like a personal toll. I feel like tired from the heart. Mrs Thatcher believed it was up to individuals and families to help themselves, famously saying, there's no such thing as society. Of course, there's always pressure on NHS resources. It's something you grown with, you, you take care of anyone elder, even if, if it's an auntie, if it's a grand, if, if it's not your parents, you take care of them. And I think the idea of the big society is trying to help individuals and communities and voluntary bodies to come together and find solutions to the problems that we have. God, you're so valid. You're so I think valid. coronavirus so crisis has already proved is that there really is such a thing as society. Uh, the current system is broken. Uh, it's not working at all well, and it's likely to get worse. And that's what happens on poverty wages. You know, you. you just, People can't look to uh, collective action when it's just trying to get through, and that's uh, a problem. The middle class in England had continued to vote Conservative because in their miserable hearts, they still believed that it was in their interest to do so. And if there has been a tagline for the past year, for me, that there really has been it. You're listening to Navarra FM on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's finest radio station. I am James Butler. You heard there, of course, the buzzsaw tones of Margaret Thatcher, the simpering vacuity of David Cameron and the meretricious waffling of Boris Johnson interspersed with clips of care workers here in Britain. Those clips were taken from research we did last year for a special episode on care work, which you can find in our archives and which will make a wonderful and useful companion to this show. I will, of course, pop it in the show notes because it is about care that we're speaking today. Before we jump into it, though, a short message. I'm recording this voiceover from my bedroom, not from the Navarra studio or the Resonance FM studio. And what that means is that, like a lot of people, I'm feeling a bit cut off. I mentioned on Twitter yesterday that I was finding this lockdown harder than the last one, and I think that's true of a lot of us. Though I think the near-permanent January night certainly has something to do with it, as probably also does the inadequacy of Zoom socialising, it's also the feeling of living under a kind of psychic occupation, the sort of weird, tacit presumption behind most British media that the way the government has handled the pandemic, is handling the pandemic, is basically okay. That the figures, the, the vast death toll, were somehow unavoidable. You can't really blame them. And maybe that's compounded by the sense that there are never really any consequences in British politics, unless, of course, you're on the left of it. So what I really wanted to do at the top of the show is to give some affirmation, to say that, no, you're not mad, you're not unreasonable, you're not unrealistic, whatever other snake words they use. You're not unrealistic to say that the government has failed, has dangerously failed uh, its people. That a government which can only communicate to its citizens through fear of sanction or shame or headline-chasing acts of cruelty is uniquely ill-suited to this problem. That the method of government perfected by the Conservative Party, a, a mutant teratoma of self-advancement, of entitlement, demonization, crude exploitation of prejudice, barratry, landlordism, corruption and sheer idle fecklessness is quite literally killing the country. You're right, and I'm right here with you. All right, let's talk about care. 
with someone who's been researching and thinking about it for a long while now. My name's Emma Dowling. I am a sociologist and political economist, and I'm currently based at the University of Vienna, um, where I am speaking from, where I'm speaking from at the moment. Early in her new book, which is called The Care Crisis, What Caused It and How Can We End It? Emma mentions that when she told people she was working on a book about care, they'd often volunteer their own stories of care experience. And that's essential, I think, as a way into thinking about this subject that care touches, or certainly will touch, all of us. As soon as you realise that, you realise it can be approached from an enormous number of angles. The fact that all of us are ageing, the fact that so much of the care workforce is migrant and female, or that care work and the work of care overlap, but aren't the same, and much of it is unpaid. Then there are other questions. Why has care become industrialised and what does that say about what our society values? What kind of work is care work? Is there a tech fix? But I started by asking Emma if anything surprised her while researching the book. Hmm. The scope and uh, was something that, that surprised me. The, there are so many different ways in which care affects people's lives and in which people are involved with care. And I think a lot of the time when we talk about care work, particularly um, in the kind of feminist context, there are certain images or certain ideas that, that we that are conjured up immediately. So the classic of the care worker um, or also the sort of mother, housewife, women caring for relatives or for children. And actually uh, care and relations of care are much, much broader than that. So I think that's the, that's the thing that, that really surprised me. And also that then within that care can be conceived of in so many different ways. And, and I think that's also something that, that care out in the process of the book and it was also probably one of the most difficult things as well as sort of what to include what to leave out what to focus on what not to focus on I mean that really took on time uh, to to decide and to and for it to also unfold and then what goes where and how does it all fit together how do you even start to define what care is I mean, even even just from the point of, is it an activity? Is it a thing? Is it a resource? Is it a relationship? How does it function? I mean, all of those questions. And I think that that's where sort of hearing from different people in their different contexts, that that really came to life. That, that actually probably is a, you know, let's try to expand on that a bit, because I think that's a really good place to start with the book. And obviously, you have a, a kind of prefatory chapter where you're sort of trying to kind of make these definitional distinctions. I mean, I was going to ask you if there's an easy way of defining care and care work, but I don't think there is. So do you have, have you, have you kind of moved towards like a working definition or like your provisional definition while you've been thinking about this stuff? Well, I think um, one of the things that when you read the book, you see that um, I'm grappling really with two terms. Um, one of those is care and care work, and the other is social reproduction what social reproduction is or, you know, the theories of, of social reproduction. And I, what I try to do is to try and distinguish between social reproduction and care. And the other thing is, of course, that a lot of the time, I think when feminists who are working on issues of social reproduction, when they want to talk about social reproduction in non-specialist context, they end up using the term care because social reproduction is so kind of clunky and jargonistic and nobody really knows what it means. And so then people sort of use the shorthand of care because care is something that everybody has some kind of association with. 
So on the one hand, I, I sort of say, well, the social reproduction, the sort of feminist theories of social reproduction, so that social reproduction is more of a kind of analytical concept that tries to show um, and give a, give a name to the kind of invisible, undervalued, feminized, unpaid labor that's done um, to reproduce both labor power um, and also life itself. And, and that that is something that really is the kind of, it's the work that, that is the condition for any kind of production of value in in a capitalist economy, um, but also that it has this other side that it that it also reproduces life itself, i.e., it's not to be reduced just to um, its function in the reproduction of labour power. So that's kind of one one side of it. And then when we come to care, well, care is obviously part of that, and care work is part of that. Um, but it's also but care is also happens in lots of different. Uh, parts of uh, society as well. And so I kind of started thinking of care along along a sort of qualitative dimension, that care has a kind of ethical, moral, affective, emotional dimension. You care for someone, um, but you also care about someone and really doing something with care. We, know, we associate with that that you do something diligently with affection. Um, when, you, when you care for someone, it has that kind of quality. And so that was kind of what, what I ended up um, sort of working with. But of course, that also is ambivalent because, um, again, when we think about care work, we can't reduce it to a kind of sympathetic attachments because, of course, care work is also lots of lots of things that are not not nice and um, it's hard work and you do a lot of things that are um, that are not just uh, reducible to the kind of you know affection and, and and caring about somebody right well I mean I think it's it seems to me that the ambivalence is also around like the question of work because you know care the, the work of care you know obviously extends outside the circle of people who are paid to work as carers and so that you get these kind of ambivalences all the, all the way down I mean I think there's something so useful in in the in the question of social reproduction it is a, a kind of complex and ambivalent term I suppose I've I've always sort of relied on saying you know social reproduction is the stuff that is everything outside um, the strict sense of kind of you know the strict economic productive cycle you know you, you've got that root in, in Marx who's interested in like economic reproduction and then so the question of like how the conditions are set in place for that to happen like he obviously recognizes there's something going on there but is not hugely interested in it depends on feminists largely over the course of the 20th century to develop um, a sense of, of what that might actually mean in practice and why it's important. Um, and, and I guess like the, one of the questions that runs through the whole kind of book for me is like this division between the, these two fields has always been one, not just a kind of analytical question, but also a question of political strategy, mm. right? So the classic claim is that it's, oh, it's only, you know, people who go out to work and therefore are in the kind of circle, you know, the cycle of uh, uh, valorization, i.e. you go out to work, you turn a profit for a boss. That means that's the the key link at which you can, you know, uh, uh, really make big kind of political change from the left. You know, obviously that, that concept has been problematized <laughs> over the course of the 20th century. If it was ever strictly true in that sense it's probably less so now it seems to me that there's a lot of interest now on the stuff that's going on you know as both the kind of social reproduction labor gets kind of drawn into that cycle so obviously one of the parts of 
of your work is to stress, you know, how much, you know, that people are being drawn into, partly as the result of quite positive advances <laughs> over the course of the 20th century, how much um, this is being drawn into the, the for, you know, the formal sphere of economic exchange. Um, you know, so, so, so it seems to me that, that there are lots of kind of interesting questions here about like, actually, why we should be paying attention to this stuff, not just because there's a crisis in it, but actually just if, from a kind of very cold sense of political strategy, it's obviously going to be quite important <laughs> over the course of this century. That kind of brings us on to the question of the sort of crisis in care and the kind of crisis framing, which obviously it gives you the title of the book. But I, I get the sense that you, you're kind of ambivalent about talking about it, the crisis just as a kind of crisis in care. It's a, it's an interesting point that you make about social reproduction uh, slash care um, as a sort of sphere of, that, that's important in and of itself, I think, for, for organizing. I and mean, as you say, that, that on the one hand, that kind of decenters the sort of white male industrial worker as the only um, important subject of uh, social and political transformation um, and shows that actually there are other spheres and other, um, other subjects along a kind of wage hierarchy and or you know, we can use the term class composition, um, that's, that's one aspect. But the other, I think, that you're also pointing to is the sort of power that rests also with these spheres and the uh, people who are involved in, in doing this, uh, this work. Um, because if it's not done, or if it's not done well, then society can't function, but neither can the economy. So I think that's the heart of um, this question of crisis in the book, that um, what we're seeing, and obviously I'm not the first to, to point to this, this is an ongoing conversation and something that certainly within uh, feminist literatures is being pointed to for, for quite some time. Well, some would say, has there ever not been a crisis in, uh, in this sphere? And certainly with the way that you know, capitalism is organized, but certainly also over the last 20, 30 years with particular kinds of changes that we've seen. Um, so entry of many women uh, into the labor market without a kind of fundamental uh, change in the sexual division of labor, but also welfare state retrenchment and austerity, and then uh, also kind of marketization of, of these spheres, which means that these services are only available as um, expensive commodities and people who can't afford them can't buy them and can't sort of buy themselves out of having to do reproductive labor and, and care work. So what's going on here? We're seeing that, um, you know, to use like Nancy Fraser's words, you know, capitalism eats, it's eating its own tail. But that doesn't mean actually that everything is uh, breaking down, even though it might feel like it at the moment. But what it actually means is that there are lots of people who are actually still caring and on whose sense of compassion and responsibility, there is a lot of reliance. And then to ask the question, oh, okay, so under what conditions are, uh, are people trying to still care? So that's really kind of what, what lies at the heart of that. And then on the other hand, what would it mean also to, to think about organizing these spheres of our lives on, on our own terms and so that it's not simply um, about just reproducing ourselves and others for, you know, to be productive for capital? I mean, right. I mean, that's one of the things that, that becomes obvious as the book proceeds is that, is that there, isn't, there isn't such a thing as sort of non-ideological care, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's, it's that, you know, the ways in which, you know, you even think about the needs that need to be met are, you know, are always conditioned by you know, what they're being met for or in order to do. And, you know, I think, you know, the, the, the transformations that, that you chart in the sector over the course of um, this period have been you know, quite startling in that sense, actually, they really have been increasingly individualized. Mm. Maybe the way into kind of talking about this is actually to talk about the, the way in which the 
the period after the, the global financial crisis is really kind of your key period in the book, uh, right? So we've had, you know, I, I, I used to say a lost decade, but now it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's coming on for, 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 you know, 15, probably two, two decades. But one of the things that, that you're attentive to in, in the book is like, you know, because it can be easy, I think, if you're paying attention to the, the cycle of British politics, to imagine that austerity was a thing that happened for the duration of the kind of Cameron government. And then it was, you know, that was put on a shelf and it's, it no longer affects us. But actually, you, you, you know, very convincingly point out that, that it has reshaped, really fundamentally reshaped um, the, the nature of the state. You quote the kind of 37 billion off welfare spending per annum by this year, 2021, which is, I mean, it's a startling, it's a staggering amount of money. And then, obviously, you know, this question is suddenly at the fore again, because, of the the state spending that that the government has been you know forced to do to to keep anything like economic life um, going during the the COVID crisis. Now today, in fact, this week we've seen you know real renewed calls. The Sun, the Times, both like the Murdoch Press, really pushing for kind of a new austerity. So I, I wonder if you could say a little bit about why that's so central to your account of the care crisis. Um, because it seems like like austerity, you know, I don't know, is it is it baked in now in our approach to how we think about care? In the book, well, I start with this period after 2008 because of what I was particularly interested in is on the one hand to show how austerity worked, not only to cause a crisis there where the cuts hit, but also that these these cuts end up in a sort of offloading of the work of care to um, the, the shoulders of particular people. Um, and so whether that's uh, families and households or individuals, um, but that's also uh, care workers, social workers, and people who are trying to sort of keep it going uh, against the odds. I wanted to uh, to show that, but I also wanted to show that um, what we saw after the global financial crisis was a way in which austerity um, was also creating a kind of vacuum uh, uh, into which we not only saw kind of un, you know more unpaid care work and trying for filling that out of necessity but also new opportunities for financial wealth accumulation. So that's kind of it. And it's this sort of intertwining of those two that um, I thought it was important uh, to look at. And particularly, and I think this comes to the point about um, uh, about austerity over overall is um, what happens to kind of the the business model of public private partnerships in the context of austerity, and um, and also what uh, what sort of new business models have been uh, have been developing to take kind of this idea of public private partnerships forward. So it was really trying to explore the reconfigurations that that were going on and how that actually. Uh, had to do with the kind of entrenching um, of personal responsibility, increasing uh, unpaid care work across lots of different um, spheres. And something what in the book I also uh, talk about as a kind of uh, triple privatization in a way, you know, in, in, in terms of personal responsibility, but also people having to do this work themselves, particularly if they can't afford the privatized commodities uh, of care that are being put out onto the market. Right. But I think there's something so, so distinct 
distinctive about this form of work. You know, I mean, this it is true across, you know, I think anyone who's experienced relatively poorly paid work also knows that, you know, quite often you have a manager really practicing on your feelings. But when it comes to care, I think you quote someone as saying, you know, that, that you know, after the cuts, so much care work basically depended on, you know, the guilt and goodwill uh, of care workers, you know, people who actually pay to do this, to, you know, going above and beyond, partly because, you know, there is a certain, you know, it seems to me that there's like a, <laughs> just a certain aspect to care work, which is you know, hard to, to extricate yourself from emotion. And I don't think anyone would want to do that. Um, you know, it seemed like a sham at the time, and obviously it disappeared very quickly. But this kind of David Cameron, big society—you know—we're all going to use our free time to to do. You know, as the state withdraws, it's going to be replaced by this kind of bizarre neo-Victorian, you know, attitude to sort of philanthropy or whatever. What you point out is, of course, that you know, one, the wake financial crisis actually saw a dip in volunteering because people felt atomized, and so you know that the, their priority uh, was going to have to be to take care. Of themselves. But then, you know, the other thing that's striking is that what survives of the big society is the kind of capital instruments named for it. Uh, the, the, the kind of program itself doesn't, doesn't seem to exist at all. So you get, you have these, um, you know, the social impact bonds, you know, care functioning uh, uh, as some kind of asset, and then the hunt for secondary markets for them. So maybe we can just talk a little bit here about the, you know, what, what prompts the interest of the finance sector in care? What's in it for them? So it's interesting you you mentioned the uh, the big society there because I think the in order to answer the question of what's in it for them maybe I should uh, explain what interest uh, what interested me or how I stumbled across it all in the first place <laughs> um, because I was sort of researching um, austerity and um, and then obviously the, the sort of big society comes up as a comes out as a way of um, reinvigorating a kind of compassionate conservatism which sort of um, conveniently then uh, links up with, with the cuts, even though I think originally it wasn't necessarily intended to do so, but it sort of becomes that, you know, sort of smoke screen for cuts and, and, um, and people kind of, you know, chipping in and, um, and, and doing their bit and helping each other um, in a sort of renewal of kind of civic, civic duty and civic activism. And at the same time, actually, what I saw was um, these, these, these talk, a lot of talk about um, social value and um, and also the need for finance to not only um, sort of think about our risk and return, but also what it can contribute to, you know, what good it can contribute to society. Certainly in the wake of the global financial crisis in which everything, you know, finance has a bit of an image problem, um, but then also as a way of, um, of also finding new new markets and new possibilities for investment but then the, the the sort of idea of social value became very interesting because it was supposedly something different than um, financial value in in sort of um, traditional traditionally understood uh, terms as a sort of return you know a monetary return on your uh, on your investments and so I sort of began to, to explore this and this is where I then found out that there was also this uh, um, organization called big Society Capital that was um, 
sort of setting up experiments in um, private finance to solve social problems like recidivism or homelessness. And um, here the idea was that um, cash-strapped governments, as they are in a a period of austerity, allegedly, and uh, that they need uh, sources of income in order to solve the social problems that uh, governments are are tasked, or in part at least, um, tasked with solving through things like welfare state. And... um, and so this private finance could uh, sort of step in and help by making the funds available. And um, then projects could generate a return on investment by solving social problems that cost taxpayers money. And so I started to explore this further. And obviously, this isn't something that has been rolled out across the country. It's more the case that there have been certain um, pilot projects and experiments. But I just thought it was absolutely astounding that this idea of... um, using private finance to um, to solve social problems was obviously connected to the fact that these problems had been caused by things like austerity and economic crisis in the first place. And yet here where individuals were, were supposed to be the ones who would get uh, help for um, dealing with their own personal problems that somehow seemed to be detached from the broader social and economic context of inequality that they were obviously uh, arise out of and so again it seems like another way of kind of individualizing and personalizing uh, the the problems of um, uh, of inequality that, that was going on there and so I just sort of this really needed uncovering. Well I think it's so interesting because like if you think about this sort of schematically about like how these things come in so you've got you know a, an area where the state may be spending on say a social problem right? So the state withdraws and says, you know, we can't afford, you know, this anymore. Okay, let's put to side whether that question of affordability is um, true or not, or whether it's ideological or not. They say the state withdraws. These kind of private capital, you know, comes in. And the question, I guess, is partly why. Um, And so the reason is because it's searching for in an era of really low returns on capital. You quote someone in the book saying, if we can fix, you know, a rate of 7% return on our investments in, you know, helping people, then that would be great because, you know, whatever. Um, but so, so they're looking for some, somewhere where their investments can, re- can, you know, can make a return on their investment. But then, you know, the, the, the cash that comes to them is at least partly from the state as well. So, you know, this is, this is private capital looking for, you know, a market to exploit that has previously been, you know, primarily dominated by the state or that hasn't really been marketized in the same way. Um, so we know that process, that's a very familiar process. But then there's something else going on as well, which is that the kind of programs that they promote, um, are as as you were suggesting there in tune with and geared towards like these very kind of deeply individualized solutions to problems. So the the solution to homelessness, for instance, is not um, building loads more social housing and giving it to people. For instance, um, that there are you know other forms of of you know these kind of highly individualized therapeutic approaches to them, which which in themselves you know are not you know I'm not suggesting that these are these are bad things. That the emphasis here. It strikes me as being, you know, geared towards very much ensuring that because the work of social reproduction forms the kind of society that we have, it does seem to me that this this stuff is 
is very, very heavily geared to ultimately having that 7% return on your investment. And I, you know, it, it seems to me that this was, this has been delivered to us without any kind of sort of democratic input or oversight. Mm, mm, absolutely. But um, what it is couched in is the idea um, of care and compassion and the social. And, and so it, it feeds feeds off and feeds into the idea that this is something good and um, this is the, this is something that that um, is not just charitable but is also uh, helping people and it's orientated towards the community and so something like also uh, elderly or older people who um, who maybe are, are struggling with with feeling rather isolated and lonely that there could be projects for that and and so it's all it's 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 things where where good is being done and so it, it I think it's that kind of ideology also that um, that means that it, it doesn't necessarily have to be passed through uh, a sort of democratic decision making because it's about doing doing good and uh, <laughs> yeah. so I think that that plays a, a strong role there well I mean but this is this is what's so interesting though and one of the things I think that is is so important for us to kind of stay with the contradiction um, you know, in in care on this stuff because, you know, I thought it was interesting that that you opened the book with that infamous Thatcherite soundbite. You know that there is no such thing as society, and went on to say, but the the rest of that speech, or the rest of that that kind of clip, really, it, it is also interesting in itself that she has a kind of vision of the social of a kind. I wonder if you know sometimes on the left we we you know we might know how to deal with you know a caricature nasty Tory, and God knows. There are enough caricature, you know, there are enough people who meet that caricature in the world, believe me. <laughs> but, you know, the, the way these things are delivered are actually often, they're very often much more posed in, in that language, as you say, of kind of voluntary kind of social bonds, right? These things that knit, knit you together that aren't kind of paid, that aren't, don't come from the state or don't come from private capital, but come from uh, your, your own individual desire to do nice things for people. Mm. So so what, what the government is doing really when it's giving money to these private companies is just making space for that to happen. It reminds me of the thing that was very difficult, actually, un- under that, that that Cameron government, which is, you know, the big society, you might have seen through it. If you saw through it as a kind of con or a sham, then that's fine. Mm. But a lot of people were very taken with the idea. And it's very difficult to say, oh, actually, all this stuff about being nice to people is actually just a lie. Because <laughs> 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 you know, people are e- either primed to kind of dismiss you as, as you know, um, you know, someone who who sees you know sinister motives everywhere, and um, but it, it does seem to me that th- this contradiction goes all the way back. It goes all the way back, maybe even to the welfare state itself. It's very difficult, even on the left, sometimes to be the person who says, you know, look, I'm in favour of fighting for uprating benefits. I'm in favour of fighting to expand them. I'm, I'm in favour of universalising them and and destigmatising the act of claiming benefits. And I think it's really really necessary right now. But it's also maybe worth being cautious about being. I guess too too enthusiastic about like an uncritical embrace of the welfare state because that brings you to that question of that that all problems can be solved just by pushing more money into the pot, um, right? That the state is just this thing that you can either put more money into and that's good, or less money into and that's bad, and and that doesn't seem to me to to account for what's actually going on here. Mm, I think there are two separate points actually that um, that you raise there. Um, volunteering, of course, is paradigmatic of uh, of this problem, and certainly um, 
working also on research I've done in the last uh, few years on on volunteering sort of after um, after this project was also about sort of the, the ways in which volunteering can be a space you know where where people come together and uh, and are sort of involved in their communities but it also can be instrumentalized in the context of cuts for example um, as I as I talk about in the in the book or also be the a new way um, well a uh, new wine in old bottles in a way I mean there's a, there, it's a sort of reinvigoration of the idea of the Victorian charity you know those with wealth help those who don't who who don't have any and uh, that has also always been couched in a kind of moral undertone of helping these people the helping the depraved to be uh, to be better citizens and to be productive etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's also kind of something that I'm trying to get at in the in the book is all of these different ways that personal responsibility is um, enforced and stressed and and actually becomes a fait accompli because of the ways that the cuts work or also the ways that uh, marketization works and all of that is going on at the same time also we're seeing these um moves to what I call it a kind of financialized Victorianism in the in in the book is is a, a resurgence of um, of some like helping other people is something that's that's voluntary that you do on the basis of your compassion as opposed to on the basis of uh, concepts of solidarity of um, um, of wealth redistribution wealth sharing etc you know and and to which of course the um, the welfare state or maybe we could think um, also more even more progressively about things like public, um, public and common good infrastructures. Because um, I think there's also an impasse uh, around uh, the public and the state that I think on the left we we really need to talk more about. Um, and so 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 there's that on the one hand, and that's why I also draw attention to the Thatcher, um, the, the sort of what she says after she says there is no no such thing as society. Because really, I think if we if we're stuck just criticizing individualism as selfishness and we miss this this other bit that of course we can care for one one another but as long as it's sort of something that we do within our social bonds uh, or as on the basis of kinship or or charity or or just because we feel like doing it and so that means that um that means that you don't have um, actually a society in which um, there is a common responsibility for a common good um, that is in, enshrined in democratic institutions and ideas of wealth sharing, etc. So that's the, the, the one point. And the other is is with the, the welfare state. You'll talk to some people and they'll argue the welfare state is you know, the, 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 the left's greatest achievement. And other people will say that was the moment in which uh, it was all co-opted and uh, the end of you know the, the struggles for liberation and it was sort of pacification of the working class. And obviously I'm caricaturing both. But that's the kind of ambivalence there. And also, of course, the very real experiences of punitive dis disciplining welfare state institutions as well right so i think there's there's all of that there and I think the question is, how do we have a conversation about what a, a you know infrastructures for the common good can look like that, that address some of those some of those issues? But you also draw attention to another point, namely, you know, is it simply about more or less money? We have to look at the ways in which 
things like public-private partnerships work, that how financialization works, how privatization actually functions, um, because then we can understand how a whole sort of mechanisms of wealth, financial wealth extraction have been built around um, the, the, the state and, and um, public, public services. And so particularly, I think now where there are lots of calls for, you know, investment and, and, and public investment. And I think this is also a moment in which there could be quite a populist sort of uh, turn of saying, yeah, look at us, you know, we're going to put all this money here. But at the same time, when you have uh, corporate corporations um, providing these services, that they have mechanisms of wealth extraction that are actually taking money out of the system. And so um, it can't just be a question of more or less money. It has to be a question of how these things are organized and ownership and, uh, and uh, yeah. uh, you know, orientation towards profiteering or towards the common good. Right. I mean, I think maybe the, the something we should just outline, because there are, I think, two forms of care work which seem which people kind of leap to when talking about the care crisis. One is um, elder care. The claim here is that there is there is effectively a sort of demographic time bomb, right, which means that, that you know, the quest, this question is only ever going to get kind of more severe mm. um, and, and more pressing. It has begun to be an issue at general elections. Um, it, it was kind of it was certainly an issue in the last one. It was certainly an issue in the 2017 one. Um, but then the other one is the adult social care crisis, which which you know it, it really. Mm. I, I have a cousin who who requires basically kind of 24 seven care, and you know, it, it's it's it like the, the yeah. I mean, I mean, I think everyone knows that the adult social care crisis is real. It's on its last legs. The fact that it, it keeps going at all is sort down of to the work of the people who are doing the caring. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so, so I'm I'm curious about like we we should probably just outline you know the people who are this workforce. You stress it's it's a very heavily gendered workforce, but it's also uh, globally uh, quite an extractivist one. Mm-hmm. One of the issues is with the way that adult social care is funded and um, the way that it's separate from uh, the NHS. It's not well in England at least. It's not not integrated, and that in terms of adult social care, the funding and the commissioning takes place through local authorities. And of course, after ten years of austerity, local authorities are really struggling. But at the same time, also they are predominantly commissioning uh, private companies to provide these services, whether it's home care, so care for people in their in their homes, or also care homes where where people live in in homes. So they are commissioning private companies. For these private companies, there are lots of different forms. So there are non-profit providers. There are also small companies that don't operate with high uh, expectations of, of profitability. But there are also increasingly corporations and private equity that has entered this this sector. And the way that they operate, of, of course, is to um, private equity, for example. Um, they use this mechanism of leverage buyouts where, for example, in the case of care homes, um, they'll buy up companies. They borrow money to do so. And then the companies they buy are sort of saddled with that debt. And so then in the operation of the business, and this is not just the case in care, this is in other areas as well, in the operation of the business, then um, these companies have to obviously uh, not only generate returns on investment, they also have to pay this debt with with interest. And there's a whole sort of uh, financial instruments that are involved in this. And so that's kind of the the basic problem. Um, Also that uh, large corporations 
institutions and certainly also by the way that private equity works is the uh, usually it's an attempt to create a kind of restructuring organization create an economy of scale and sell you know sell the company on and in order to do that obviously you need to um, generate profitability now in the area of care what happens is this is not really an area where you can you can generate the kind of um, productivity gains that will give you the really high returns on investment it's a low risk low return area and so this just simply doesn't work and it just becomes a way of extracting wealth and as we've seen with sort of high insolvency cases this is really a problem for for care homes and even if this isn't the dominant model in the sector it certainly exerts quite some some pressure um, also because of the way that commissioning is also um, you know tender is to it's competitive um, and you have to sort of provide you know services at a low low price so this kind of marketization we have to understand how they work we have to understand the mechanisms of wealth extraction that are going on there and the ways in which that actually then in turn impacts on on the care work that is done and on the wages and the conditions because care work is something that's so labor intensive. The only place where you can really generate any kind of uh, savings is in the labor itself. And that's actually where we see um, see huge problems um, and things like zero hour contracts, uh, low wages, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Well, I mean, this is like the classic capitalist question, isn't it? It's, you know, if you can't, um, you know, find some sort of kind of technological productivity saving. Um, if you can't fight, can't can't make more efficient the, the way you produce things, then you have to kind of intensify the rate of exploitation. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you can do that by like by making people literally work physically harder. But one of the things that's really striking about your account is that care and time um, are are intimately bound up with each other. One of the things that kind of blew my mind was like the way in which these companies just redefine actual care. Um, it seems to me to be really, really clear that to deal with the question of care, we also have to deal with the question of time and who has time and who gets to have time. Mm, absolutely. And I mean, I think, I think, again, there's two points here. On the one hand, um, when we look at the mechanisms at, at play, we see that they're also based on uh, definitions and redefinitions of what care even means. It brings us back to uh, you know, our discussion at the very, very beginning of uh, today's conversation and sort of first one of the first chapters of my book um, is what what does care actually mean and if you if you reduce care to the sort of bare physical um, activities and the sort of bare minimum of what's needed to uh, to you know keep things going uh, that's one way of thinking about it but it's certainly not a sustainable uh, one or and it certainly raises questions about well-being and whether this is the kind of society we want to live in and I think particularly in the area of care I think we see this in this is a much broader discussion of where where does capital sort of uh, reach its its limits when it tries to commodify certain areas of, of life? I think you know knowledge is a, is another area we could we could talk talk about, and uh, certainly the university people working in universities can can tell a story of that as well. Um, but yeah, so there's there's kind of this the this is the the issue I think here about um, what we even conceive to be care, and if we say that the emotional, affective aspects, the the, the more um, 
the, this, the aspects of care that we associate with the word care, if they're not not part of uh, the job or if they sort of have to be done in the interstices of, of, of finding time to, to do so, um, then uh, then we also really have a, a problem on our hands, I, I think. So that's 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 really what I'm uh, I'm trying to to get at there. Um, and and the other thing is that you asked the question of who has who has time to care. I think here for me is is really a, an important issue about what is to be done um, because I think on the one hand. It, we need to decide that care is something that we need to attribute resources to and not simply because um, it's an investment in a productive workforce. Um, it goes much further beyond that. We also need time to care for, for one another. Care is not something that we can simply um, pass on to other people. One of the things that I was thinking about while reading it is is the way in which people have started in the last few years to kind of talk quite nostalgically about the family in the sense that, you know, condemning or, or, or criticising the sort of uh, increasingly atomized and increasingly sort of, you know, non-existent, really, classic uh, nuclear industrial family, largely as a, a kind, you know, in a kind of nostalgism for kind of extended kinship structures. Um I, I am more skeptical about that, I think, than, than a lot of people. You know, I, I think there can be a dangerous sort of nostalgism there. But but what it does, I think, kind of speak to is, one, the way in which there is a feeling, a complex feeling, I think, that people often have to negotiate about this being the kind of work that one wants to do or feel that they should be doing for people that they love and that they don't have the time to and then have very kind of complex feelings about negotiating that. Um, maybe the answer to that really isn't to kind of romanticize the family as such <laughs> i think that's that's maybe not a great road to go down absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not i think we need to go in the other direction <laughs> The, the, the COVID crisis also brought brought home to us into what extent our um, our society still relies on the nuclear family as its basic unit of social organisation and and what problems that runs up against then in the context of, of lockdown. So um, you have on the one hand, um, you know, when when everything is brought into the home, schooling, office, etc., you can see the limits of a dual earner uh, model in which uh, both partners if there are two partners are going out to work, normally they would go out to work. Now they're working at home and trying to take care of uh, kids and homeschool them and take care of other relatives. So you see the limit uh, of the, the the nuclear family right there. Um, but then also the other question, of course, is that those individuals who don't live in that kind of structure for, for whatever reason are also faced with with not being able to meet their needs in that in that context of lockdown. So I think I think there was a sort of light shone on that on that issue certainly in in that concept or you know certainly things like not just homelessness or domestic violence but also people who live on their own or also people for whom actually most of their care um, is happens outside of their home and not in the home and then the question of whether it might have been possible to have other kinds of units. I mean, I think that kind of came through with the support bubble stuff, right? Does the un the basic unit have to be that that nuclear family, or can it be something else? And I think for me, there there is a question about what would 
our relations of care look like if we take them out of that traditional family setting and the sort of roles that are attributed to different uh, people within that within that family setting and really kind of you know breaking that open and uh, defamiliarizing uh, care in 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 that sense I think would be a very interesting uh, interesting thing to do and very necessary thing to do but I think there are also it has to be different than the kind of charity um, I help someone else because I feel like it or because they're nice to me. I mean, that's, that's another thing as well, isn't it? That um, we don't want a situation and where people are cared for because because they're nice to me or because they're a nice person. And so I feel like I should uh, I should care for them, um, which is the kind of idea also of um, volunteering. Um, there, there obviously needs to be a, a way of securing care for, for everyone. But if um, can we think of a sort of different uh, different kind of organization? I think that it's also problematic to kind of boil care down to a sort of individual behavior or a sort of moral attitude in the sense of calling for a more caring society and that that things will be different or things have to change. We have to sort of all be nicer and more caring towards one another. I, I, I couldn't possibly do this show without feeling, you know, the ghost of Aaron Bastani standing over my shoulder and saying, ask about robots. So <laughs> I, I, I feel that I should, I should ask because it's one of the things that the kind of the tech utopians often say. I mean, this is not actually, I think, Aaron's position. I shouldn't, I shouldn't caricature it. Um, but that, that robots can take care of all the kind of messy bits of care or the kind of, you know, awkward bits of care. And then we can be free to, to do the sort of, uh, the nice bits of care, i.e. like speak to people and, you know, uh, show them affection. I wonder if you could talk, because you say you say a little bit in the book about the kind of advances made in both kind of care platforms, but also um, in these kind of, you know, tech fixes, as it were. Mm. Well, I think the first thing to say about that is the question of um, can care and care work, caring and care work really be separated out in that way <laughs> that, um, that actually caring, um, you can sort of siphon off the, the bad bits and keep the good bits. Is that really how it works, um, or can it really work like that? That somehow you're sort of left with those with those ni- with those nice bits, or do do the two actually go go together? I mean, think of it in 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 an image. Um, you know, could you have all the what is it going to look like? You're going to have sort of lots of tech, um, and then you'll have someone who sits there and is nice to you. I mean, no, so it, it, I, I, I struggle with with this idea that you could sort of siphon off different aspects and um, and then that would somehow um, deal with deal with the problem. I think that's that's the first thing. So so to put it into a question, isn't care work? Aren't these different aspects of care work? So help with physical aspects, um, the emotional dimensions, the social dimensions. Aren't they necessarily interwoven with one another in what it means to provide or give uh, and receive care? I think that's that's one that's one question. Um, the the other question is, of course, to what end is technology deployed? And so, I mean, we know this from from other discussions. Um, already about you know other areas of work in the gig economy where um, tech is often used to surveil and control uh, workers and increase productivity or you know so um, 
so there's a there's a question there about what kind of tech is used for what <laughs> and mm-hmm. and and then how does that how does that shape work and then i think the other thing with with something like platforms is you know do they are they a sort of conduit for casualization or something else you know i mean obviously discussions about platform cooperativism etc so the question really is what um what is care and how does care work work and um what is this tech being deployed to do and also uh, what aspects of care can really be you know where where can technology be used and where where can it not actually uh be so i think there needs to just be a much more nuanced uh discussion and i don't think technology is going to save uh save us and deal with the issue if we also don't transform and change the the social relations in which care is is uh, given and that's not an anti-tech position that's not a technophobic position by, by far because i think we really do need to think of the ways that assistive technologies and communications technologies can make caring easier uh, making it easier to receive and give care um, but i do think we have to have an eye to the political economy and the social context um, of what kinds of technologies are being used to do to do what exactly and certainly also with with assistive technology again i think we 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 do have this question of well if if it is the case that assistive technologies can provide the care um why is it really going to be the case that then um, necessarily we are suddenly going to be living in this world where we all have time for one another and care about one, one another and spend lots of time for one another? Or is this assistive technology safe for elderly people to remain in their in their homes and be able to do a lot of things themselves? Um, is that just a way of freeing up everybody else's time to do more wage labor? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that the, the other side of this, and maybe like the the you know, it's a related one to the question of technology, is just that you you dedicate a kind of final chapter of the book to this, that sort of meshing of care, capitalism, and consumption, which you know, which is is my reading of what lies under your chapter on self care, which is now very fashionable. Mm. But what struck me most was what you call the 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 you know the the way in which like lots of you know the the discussion around. Uh, you know, self-care, uh, it, you know, seems very much to harken back to this sense that you are, you are, you, you must be endlessly fashioning yourself, that there is a, a an ontological inadequacy um, that, that that is at the bottom of this, you know, so you go into to this, this question of the kind of boom in, in these beauty products and, um, you know, the way in which that there is a, a kind of, you know, also a boom of sort of almost user-generated media about mm. this stuff, you know, endless YouTube reviews, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Yeah, and I wonder if you think there's room for a kind of revival of a sort of, you know, not not an unsophisticated, but a kind of critical anti-consumerism here, one that says, you know, maybe we need to combine like old school feminist critiques of the beauty industry with, you know, a really serious critique of, uh, you know, the way in which this stuff inculcates like a, you know, contemporary market logic. Mm. Yeah, it inculcates a contemporary market logic and it also fuels anxiety. And I think that's mm. what kind of what I was trying to get at with the sort of in ontological inadequacy mm. of like you're always trying to uh you're always trying to to sort of do better and be better but also i think in a situation where it feels like the only person you can rely on is yourself um then you have to make sure that that self can function and and i think that i think there's something again about you know the personalization of responsibility that that happens there but then also self-care there's an ambivalence to self-care well 
there's more than more than two <laughs> problems actually <laughs> but you know there's a sort of confluence of um <laughs> Of, of, of issues on the on the one hand um uh the sort of uh, self-care also as as you know part of the the well-worn uh, self-optimization industry but then also self-care i think in the last few years has become a kind of crisis management it has become a response to um the ills of of, of capitalism and the ills of of self-optimization i mean other people Andrew robbie has um you know, put out a sort of critique of resilience and my colleague and yena uh, Stephanie Grafer has written a book about resilience as this kind of um, response, actually, to neoliberalism's crisis uh, uh, the, or the neoliberal subject's crisis, maybe to put it to put it like that. Um, so there's there's all of there's all of that, and I think things like clean eating that I that I talk about are come out of this sort of. Um, response to um the the you know the ills of industrialized capitalism uh, but but yeah feeding it back into a sort of idea that that congruent consumption is somehow the same thing as acting together which which it's of course not um but but also that this this sort of lack of self-esteem does make us more kind of you know controllable and exploitable and that's i'm really trying to grapple with uh with all of that while at the same time saying but but there's also been a been really important traditions of self-care whether that's in um whether that's in the um nursing and and sort of care jobs where people learn that to self-care because that's a really important way of of actually not burning out um but and also for people who who are sort of very orientated towards what everybody else wants from them also to 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 think of what their own needs are that's really important or also in a kind of um context of you know anti anti racist racist movements are also queer movements and you know sort of self-care as 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 something really really important and so I don't so I think it's sort of really trying to think through all that's all through all of that um while at the same time rejecting the sort of neuroticism with with the the body and the self that is imposed on us through this kind of marketized and and commodified versions and that and the, there's some the sort of promise that we can compartmentalize all of these different parts of our of our lives in including intimacy um so i think in that sense yeah a revival uh, i mean susie orbach is somebody that i also um discussed very briefly in the in the chapter and i think this is kind of her point in her book about bodies you know sort of uh, to not uh, to, to somehow you know let go of that kind of neuroticism um and which is what what these industries feed so i think uh, some kind of revival there could be could be interesting um and yeah i, th I, th I think so but i think it's also kind of um the consumerism critique is also always difficult, and I think particularly um, when it forgets labour. <laughs> and so, so I wouldn't, I, I don't want to argue for a sort of, um, you know, anti-consumerist um, politics because I think it's that's precisely what the marketization of all these new kind of care products in in part feeds off that you can consume your way out of, uh, you know, a problematic and and and. Uh, you know, exploitative uh, social relations, and that obviously is not possible. So yeah, so not anti-consumerism as a sort of end in itself, but I do think a critique of these industries and, and a rejection of them uh, is necessary. 
So, I mean, my final question is is the, the old Leninist question, what is to be done? <laughs> and I think also who is going to do it? Mm. You know, reading this book, I, you know, it, it makes a really strong case that obviously for all of us that care is something that we are all involved in and certainly will be involved in over the course of our lives. Um, and you're very clear in your in your conclusion to say, you know, that, that you're you're very resistant to a kind of quick care fix. And you say that there's no standalone answer, no neat policy, uh, no technocratic solution, um, which I think is is true. And yet I look at the kind of, you know, the, the, the two things we have here. One is the the nature of the every dimension of this crisis. And I think one of the things that's so strong about the book is that, you know, it refuses to see it through, see, see the kind of care crisis through a single lens, you know, whether it's kind of you know, a particular form of care, whether you know it's a you know specifically kind of care workers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so on the one hand, we have you know the dimension of that crisis, and then you know certainly in Britain, you know we might have for the past few years have had some kind of very interesting political conversations, which began to touch on the issue of care. You know, there are certainly lots of books and discussions coming on the question of care. The question of like a political route to this stuff, you know, I, I look around the political landscape in Britain and I am not filled with you know, an astonishing degree of optimism about, about you know, what even, you know, what, what even like the direction of travel is to start dealing with this question, like where, where I would, you know, chip mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? There is a conversation that that needs to happen, and because this needs to be something that is obviously democratic and and participatory. But where where actively to start? I think it is in trying to connect up these these dots, right? I mean, supporting supporting the 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 campaigns and initiatives of, of of unions also the kind of level of the local authority i'm quite interested in the municipalism stuff i've been working i mean i kind of make a reference to sort of ideas of care municipalism you know how can that that local level of the municipality be somewhere where actually that impasse of the public and the commons could could maybe in some way be dealt with in a in a in a productive way also thinking about um, um, how how we reclaim uh, time for for care in our everyday lives and 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 workplaces and, and where we live. I think those are all um, all places to start. And obviously, the the COVID crisis has um, has brought that right <laughs> brought that right right there. It, it's it is there. And so um, I think it, it's really productive to think of a combination of a political demand for publicly funded infrastructures and with that the necessary progressive tax reforms etc and the self-organization also of um of care and and sort of pushing beyond the arrangements of care that we have already to 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 really build new kinds of uh, care infrastructure so i think it's those two aspects that that need to need to go together um if if we're going to make any kind of headway wonderful i think that's it emma thank you so much (laughs) (laughs) it's my absolute pleasure it's always that's it for this week my thanks to emma dowling whose book on the care crisis is out now from verso strongly strongly recommended and you can find our companion podcast on care work in britain in a link from this show's page Uh, check our social media as well for that otherwise stay locked here on resonance 104.4 fm this has been navara fm i have been james butler and i'll be back next week bye-bye
Hello, I'm Nadia Idol, one of the hosts of the ACFM podcast on Navarra Media, the show which explores links between left-wing politics, culture, and experiences of collective joy with soulful tunes to match. ACFM has just launched its own dedicated podcast feed, a home for every trip myself and co-host Jeremy Gilbert and Kia Milburn have been on so far, whether on consciousness raising, the weird left or the cosmic right, as well as every microdose episode, that is to say a conversation with special guests we've recorded so far. So make sure you're subscribed to the ACFM feed to keep up with every new episode. Just search for ACFM wherever you get your podcasts. Whoa, that's pretty far out. <laughs>